the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. Every Saturday, make this appointment radio 2 to 4. Anthony Weiner versus yours truly, Curtis Lewa, and all of you participating in this good old-fashioned talk radio program. Uh, you can also uh, eyeball it uh, on the WABCradio.tv uh, uh, feed. It's a TV station that our owner-operator, John Katzmatidis, has set up. Guys, you make sure that feed is operating so that I'm not selling wolf tickets out there. And then, obviously, you can get this on podcasts. You can share it with others. Uh, But it's a different kind of a program because you actually get to hear multiple points of view, not uh, in any one, uh, in deference to any one side or the other. So, Anthony, good to have you on board again. Good to see you. How was your week? Uh, Busy, 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 as I'm sure yours were, uh, because, um, you know, when it comes to dealing with Ukrainians, Uh, The district you came out of, your city council district in Brooklyn, the area that you lived uh, and you were congressman in, that old Regal Park, Kew Gardens, uh, uh, Forest Hills area, lots of Buharians uh, from the uh, central uh, republics of the old Soviet Union. So you were like immersed in that area. And uh, I did extraordinarily well in the mayoral election in all amongst Ukrainians and Russians and those who are Buharians. So you have a good working knowledge of them. I have a pretty good working knowledge of them. And I don't think most people understand that there are more Ukrainians in New York City than anywhere else in the world other than in the Ukraine, because so many of them have come here to settle. So your perceptions about what we have seen in the last week. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting because we also also in Queens, I had Pakistani and Indian constituents. And there had always been, although it didn't translate here, there had always been an attention between those two states, you know, for obvious reasons. The Ukrainian community and the Russian community, and as you said, the Bukharian community, the Belarusian community, the Georgian community, there's they're basically intermingled. They 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 there's no there's not a sense of there's not a sense of resentment among them. Um, and so I, I'm what I'm sensing in New York is probably what is going on with expats of the former Soviet republics all over the world of kind of head scratching and sadness because even in even the reports that you heard out of Russia leading up to this, it wasn't like people were marching in the streets, you know, with blood in their eyes, you know, f- uh, chanting for war. They were even believing themselves that they didn't think that the Russians were going to go go do this. This is a very sad thing, and I know you and I have a a show of of left and right, and we generally take those positions a lot. It's hard putting aside the the politics. It's hard not to watch what is going on and just feel like we're watching a slaughter. This is look, and for a lot of for for a lot of us, for let's say most of us, you know, since 1945, we haven't seen real war. I mean, we've had conflicts, but we haven't seen anything like this in Europe. And so this is a real eye opener for our younger listeners, also who are like trying to imagine what it might have been like to watch on the world stage basically one country not and a big one stepping over the line of another one and 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 invading and it is it is gut-wrenching to watch well you know uh fool me once fool me twice fool me a third time we've been doing that historically iraq is probably 
the, the perfect example of a fake war that we set up. We lined up all of our allies. We said we were going in there, weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein was Hitler. Remember, we always use that term. Whenever we want to go to war against somebody, they're Hitler. Bashir Assad was Kerry's best friend. Then he's Hitler. Uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton called Putin the first time when he came into the Crimea. Hitler. So you knew we were going to war the moment they started throwing that term around Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein is not Hitler. Bashir Assad was not Hitler. Vladimir Putin is not Hitler. But for us to be attacking as we are Vladimir Putin, you know what he's doing? He's doing what Bush 43 uh, was doing, regime change. We created that term, regime change. He is going into the Ukraine. He has given us every warning in the world. Now, the president of Ukraine was not taking it all that seriously, was not building up his armaments, was not saying, hey, they got 190,000 troops that's surrounding us from three different fronts. The guy is going to invade you. Nobody. Now, to the president, uh, uh, Joe Biden, he was correct. He said they're going to invade them. And we say, oh, come on, you're overhyped. This is the first time in my lifetime intelligence, the intelligence community was correct on information because they've been wrong on almost all other information they've given us in all the crazy wars that we've gotten involved in. In this one, the intelligence was, yeah, he's going to invade the Ukraine. Uh, our president, yep, he's going to invade the Ukraine. The rest of the world saying, nah, you won't do that. You know, he's uh, the price of oil. And, and he invaded the Ukraine. He did exactly what he set out to do, and we're all shocked. Yeah, well, this is the cost, though, of when there's so much lying going on in the public space. There's an understandable cynicism that citizens have about what they hear almost everywhere now because it has become almost de rigueur that people lie all the time. And so when you finally need someone to understand, uh, uh-uh, we're telling you the truth. This is a real disease and you have to go get your shot. People say, ah, I don't want to. I'm, instead, I'm going to listen to some crazy guy who told me something else. We are at this, this problem. And, and you could argue that maybe Watergate began it in the political sphere where people just lost their... They, 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 they lost their innocence and, and began to, to believe the worst and most cynical things. I have to think, you know, where we were sitting a week ago, we were having this conversation. Is Joe Biden doing the right thing by speaking loudly and clearly, basically revealing whatever intelligence that we might have basically in the open space? To some degree, it was all he could do. We, I think he made the correct assessment that we couldn't put troops in there. But to some degree, he also kind of won the information war if— Putin was going to set up some false pretense, putting aside the most ridiculous false pretense that, you know, somehow Ukraine is any threat to Russia, which they never were. Biden, by speaking frankly to the American people and to the world and saying, listen, this is coming. Now, I, as I said last week, Zelensky had a reason to try to minimize it. He had to act like a leader and had to hope for the best. But we were saying all the way along and Biden was doing what he could. The other thing that we learned with this is that you have if you have a tyrant who runs a large military, that's a dangerous thing. And that when we pump up tyrants, when we express our support for tyrants, when we get close to tyrants, when we hold, we hold out on, on giving arms to the enemies of tyrants, we weaken the United States of America and we weaken the world order. And we're seeing it now. I mean, we're seeing that, 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 that clearly the efforts that should have been going on over the last four years before Joe Biden took office to strengthen Zelensky's hand— to arm him to the teeth if possible, to get as much intelligence as he could. Instead, we were hunting around about questions about, about the Biden's son's laptop's friend's uh, 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 apprentice. Um, I, I, these things matter. And unfortunately now we're at a situation 
where you rely upon ultimately the leaders of these countries to act reasonably. Putin is not. He is. No, it's it's unclear what the end game will be, but right now it's meaning bloodshed. Well, you always look at things uh, from the side of your enemy. When I'm in the streets and somebody says, I'm going to kill you, Curtis, uh, I'm going to make sure I get that person before they get me. I'm going to take them for their word. But you got to understand your enemy. Now imagine, here you are, Putin. Last year, he had demonstrations all over the country. Uh, demonstrations that shocked him. There's no doubt. Because remember, all during COVID, he didn't come out of his, uh, uh, his silo. He was uh, out of sight, out of mind to the general um, Russian public. Remember, he was always considered the strong man. And all of a sudden, you couldn't find Vladimir Putin. So he had problems at home. He arrested the person and put him in the gulag who was responsible for organizing. But he knows that that energy is in the streets. Belarus had an insurrection. He came to that strong man's aid. Uh, That was a tough one. I've spent time in Minsk. And boy, you talk about an autocratic uh, totalitarian dictatorship. He saved that guy's leadership, and recently in Kazakhstan, had riots in the streets. He had to send in troops. So I think he's looking at all of this and says the largest country in Europe is the Ukraine. They better not become part of NATO because that's going to put them right on the lip of Russia. I think he was saying that all along. We weren't listening. We were not listening. It would be like similar to if all of a sudden Mexico became allies of uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Russia— and red China, we wouldn't take uh, to that all that fondly. Ukraine is not part of NATO. Oh, but uh, everything indicates that we wanted to make them part Listen, of NATO. There's, there's nothing. You are buying the Putin line. The rationale. It, it, I thought you were going in a different direction. Yes, he stands up for all of these countries and keeps them as satellites because he ultimately aspires to getting the old USSR back together again. That's what his motivation is. It's some kind of a weird comparison to Stalin he has in his head. I don't understand what he's thinking, except he acts like anyone who's like me in these satellite states, I want them to be close to me and I want to be part of me. And when when the people of, of Ukraine said, no, we want we want true independence, and half the country or so feels more kind of Western, and, and during the Orange Revolution, the country basically rose up and said no to Putin-style politics— I think in his mind, if he's going to put the band back together again, it means it means it means Ukraine. But I don't believe that the NATO rationale. This predates any talk of NATO. This this pre this what this goes back to. Remember something? He was propping up people. He was he was taking over Crimea in 2014. He was he was propping up you know uh, 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 candidates in in the election that wound up being failures. He's been wanting to do this for a while. All right, but, but let, I would, let, let's look at the Crimea. There was no resistance there. Nobody took to the streets. There were no battles. They had uh, taken a plebiscite. They wanted to be part of Russia. You remember that? That was a peaceful transition. That wasn't a violent well, I, transition. Well, no. It was. It was basically. It was one one state taking over and annexing part of another and and violating international sovereignty. You don't seem to have your mind around the idea about how weak Ukraine is compared to Russia. They can't. It's like you're you're seeing this these heroic acts on the streets right now, but. There is ultimately, if Putin wants to go and take over a neighboring country, it's akin to us going and taking over Canada. And by the way, culturally, that's a pretty good analogy because it's not like the people of, of, of Russia hate the people of the Ukraine. These are their cousins. These are their mishpuka. These are people that, that, they, that they, they don't wish harm to. You, you look at the comments, the, 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 the sentiments that are emerging on the street, even, even to cross-cultural lines here, even Ovechkin of the capitals, who's like Putin's best buddy, was saying, we don't want this. We want peace. 
I, I think that this is the, the, the act of maybe madman's too strong a word. And you say not, uh, Hitler gets thrown around. Madman maybe gets thrown around too much because I think you're right. I think he has a rationale. But to, to say that his rationale is a reasonable one, that he wants that the NATO, if, by the way, as recently as last week, the Ukrainian president said, if you want us to declare our, um, our uh, um, uh, uh, not taking of a side, I don't know what that, that word is escaping me right now, our, our neutrality, well, do it tomorrow. Yeah, but remember, Anthony, you're glorifying the president now of the Ukraine. When he was sitting down and he was meeting with Trump, he was being vilified. He was a zero. He was part of quid pro quo. Remember, this is Wait, the but, same president. Right, but Zelensky was the one being held up. He wasn't the guy doing the holding up. He was the one saying, I'm not. He was the one saying, can I have my $400 million now? And it's, it was Trump saying, uh, not right now. I'm going to freeze that money. But first, I yeah, want you to investigate my political well, Let's remember who we're dealing with in the Ukraine, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Both sides are corrupt, hopelessly corrupt. Every one of their leaders uh, has sided up with oligarchs, whether they're Russian oligarchs or Ukrainian oligarchs. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the we, world. Uh, Curtis, we've lost our moral authority to condescend to them after our president of the United States was impeached for holding up the guy for aid to help him hold the line against her. I think we have lost our ability to lecture anyone. Do you not that realize that I think most Americans, even those who voted against Trump, actually feel in poll after poll now that if Trump were president right now, this never would have happened. Uh, I know that he was thrown out of office in part because of his dealing with the Russians, so I don't believe any poll that says otherwise. But would you, just hypothetically, if he had won and not uh, Joe Biden becoming our president, do you really think the same set of circumstances would have taken place if Putin were dealing with Trump and not with Joe Biden? No, Putin would have had Trump explaining, doing the Fox News line on our national TV. That Trump would have said, oh, it's not so bad. The Russians are not so bad. They're very savvy. They're very good at their jobs. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I would expect to hear from him. I would expect it to be much easier for Putin because there's no way that, that, that Trump would have taken a strategy that Joe Biden did of revealing all the information. I mean, look. It, 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 I don't know how anyone can take a position except to say that Trump had an, an unnaturally cozy relationship with Putin for reasons that I think we still don't fully understand. He was standing up and saying things like, I believe, why would Putin do anything that our foreign intel- our intelligence services said he did? They were, he was holding up aid to, to, to Ukraine. He was holding up aid to Ukraine to help them defend themselves against the Russians. So I don't know why you could probably write Someone will write a book or an indictment more likely about why it is Trump was so close to Putin, but he clearly was. Yeah, but look, Barack Obama gave the Ukrainians nothing, none of the sophisticated hardware. Trump eventually gave Poland, Romania and Ukraine more upgraded armaments to defend themselves against potential Russian incursion. And again, I think it goes back to the point is if you look at Vladimir Putin, he does not respect Zelensky. He does not respect Joe Biden. He does not respect NATO. He feels he can bully his way into whatever he wants. And these ideas of sanctions. We imposed sanctions against him eight years ago. And all of his cronies, all of his oligarchs. Did that hurt him? The answer is no. By the way, do you know who one person he clearly does respect? Hillary Clinton. He fought really hard to make sure that, uh, that Donald Trump won that election, as you, as you read in, in the Mueller report and elsewhere. He really socked it in on Trump because he knew he would have a soft touch there. So it's clearly he, he respects Shirley Clinton. As far as the sanctions go, I 
I have to admit that it seems like we're constantly saying this is the mother of all sanctions, and then we roll out some other sanction that, no, this is the actual, this is the grandmother of all sanctions. I think that when you are a, a, an oligarch and when you're Putin, you are not holding your money in rubles. You don't have art in your basement. You're not investing in Bitcoin. Somewhere you have dollars that is all this money that he's stolen from the Russian people. It is mind-boggling to me that we don't know where it is. And I wonder if it's because, not to be conspiratorial, that there are tools that we want to u- that we could use against the uber, uber, uber rich, but other uber, uber rich people are concerned about us using those tools. Like, why is it? I mean, how hard can it be just to go to the Swiss and say, listen, any, any Russian citizens with a billion with a B dollars in any of your accounts, do you mind if you freeze those just for the next week while we sort out who they are? Why would that be so difficult to do? Yeah, but again, even if all of that came about, when the hell have sanctions ever worked? They were imposed upon Saddam Hussein. Oh, this is going to weaken him. This is going to take him down. Didn't. Cuba, we have had sanctions against Cuba since uh, Fidel Castro rolled in his tanks and then eventually uh, decided his loyalty was to Nikita Khrushchev and not to the United States. What have sanctions done there? We're constantly imposing sanctions. We're saying this is the route to go. Quite frankly, this guy has survived with all the sanctions in the world imposed upon him. He saw this all coming down the pipe. He had his troops on the border since October. You didn't think he prepared for the sanctions? Yeah, I I think the sanctions, in the case, if you have a leader like Putin who doesn't really care the impact it's having on his people, I think the only sanctions that worked is something that affects Putin and his family directly. And I will admit sitting here, I don't know how sanctions work that that would do that. But I can't believe... That, you know, here we are, we're the pinch point of financial transactions of the world. That's the one benefit of being the financial capital of the world and the reserve currency of the world is we should have a handle on this stuff. Um, If I had to find rubles, obviously we'd have a tough time. But he's keeping his money in London. He's keeping his money here. I'm surprised that we can't basically have him open up his bank account one day and and find out there's nothing there. Anthony, he's got liquid gold. That's all you need, oil. Look at the price of oil going up. He's the third largest oil producer in the world. When uh, Joe Biden, the president, decided no more uh, Keystone Pipeline, all of a sudden we started importing oil from Russia. Anyway, let's give out our phone numbers, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. When we come back, what does uh, Zelensky do? He's defiant now. But does he remain defiant or does he try to work out some kind of a compromise so that not only does he live for another day, but the people of the Ukraine can survive without having to flee their homeland? 1-800-848-WABC. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. And it's uh, all Ukraine talk all the time, at least in our first hour. And Anthony Weiner, uh, Zelensky. Uh, you hunkered down. You did not flee like the uh, Afghan president had in the helicopter with all the money as the Taliban were moving in on Kabul. Uh, what should he be doing? Uh, what should the Ukrainians be doing? Because many of them are fleeing. They're heading off into Poland and other surrounding uh, countries. 
It's a nation of 42 million people, the largest in all of Europe. Uh, the rest of Europe can't deal with that kind of refugee process. And should we here in America be welcoming uh, Ukrainian refugees from this carnage? Well, it's not an easy question. I mean, what would you do? I mean, what would we do in this circumstance? You're going to have, I mean, the people are going to try to fight to defend their homeland. I, 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 they're going to get overwhelmed. I mean, intuitively, you would think that just given the, the strength of the Russian military. It's entirely up, up to Putin. I don't think, practically speaking, that the, the people of, of Ukraine will be anything more than a roadblock. Now, I would imagine that Putin would want to take the head of the, 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 the Ukrainian government out. He's been trying to do that for quite some time. I'm sure he would like that. I think there's going to be a refugee crisis in Europe. There's going to be a refugee crisis that might emerge here. Um, that's part of the reason why having strong sovereign states is important because there are ripple effects all around the world. But I don't think that there is some magic word that Zelensky can say, <laughs> to be honest. I don't think that there's some magic proposal that hasn't been thought of to try to get Putin back in his box Um I think that Putin, we, the only question, and I, I alluded to this in our past shows, I don't understand what Putin's endgame is. Does he, is he, does he want Russian troops occupying their brother's country? I mean, is that going to be the play? Is he going to take half the country and occupy it, take the eastern half and say, okay, we're going to occupy this part? Um, I don't know what the end game is for Putin. I don't think anyone does. I think uh, if you're Vladimir Putin, you understand the politics of the Ukraine because it is a, demo- a democracy. And there are members of the parliament who have been duly elected who are pro-Russia. We, we haven't had any discussion about that. They are the minority of the parliament. But there is a segment that is very pro-Russia. I would think right now his agents are working with them to come up with a de facto government that would replace Zelensky. Because clearly he wants regime change. And I think this all goes back. A lot of people haven't focused on this. Zelensky is a comedian, and you know how comedians are. They try to lighten up a meeting. In one of his initial meetings with Putin, who obviously is not going to respect uh, Zelensky the way maybe he would another world leader because he's new. He's a, he's a rookie. Apparently, Zelensky made some jokes just to try to cool things off a little bit, <laughs> not realizing that Vladimir Putin has no sense of humor whatsoever, and I think uh, he took offense to that never really took to engaging with Zelensky. And Zelensky never really had anyone in his government who was good at dealing with the Russians. And so as he amassed these troops, you have to believe that he wants regime change that he already has in mind, a de facto government that he does have support in the Ukraine, although not the majority of the Ukrainians. And I think he just wants to put a puppet into place. Now, many would say that we put a puppet into place when we ran out his guy, when there was a coup d'etat, and there were many right-wing elements who were part of that coup d'etat. When I looked at some of those groups, I said, oh, my God, this is like going back to World War II. These are like neo-fascists here. And they were eventually able to rein them in. But there's still some elements that still exist in the Ukraine that, that take you back to World War II that are very neo-fascist in terms of their orientation. So to me, it's a hot mess. And I think somebody has to be able to come in and say, okay, Putin, what do you want? We're here to save lives. We don't want a refugee crisis. Uh, is it all about Zelensky being there with a hard hat on, you know, in his silo? Or do we try to figure this out? What do you want, Putin? Well, what Putin wants is not for there not to be a democracy there. And because when a democracy has spoken in that country, yes, there are elements that, that did not support the Orange Revolution. But I should point out that when Yuchenko was elected, 
duly elected, what did Putin do? He poisoned them. You know, he went from being this handsome movie star guy to being, that. you know, he, he was poisoned. And that's what, that's what Putin wants. Putin wants, he wants to control over Ukraine as he has over those other nominally satellite states to the Soviet Union. If it gets back to what might be his larger aspiration, he probably sees as the great undoing of his country was when the Berlin Wall fell and the United Soviet Socialist Republics turned into Russia and all these other republics that had some degree of self-determination. Ukraine has chosen a more European bent. That has been his concern all along. He has tried in all kinds of ways. He's tried, he's tried intervening in their elections. He's tried uh, uh, putting up candidates. He's tried poisoning candidates that have defeated him. It's not to say that in a, in a democracy you are not going to have people that might be pro-Putin. But what he wants is to overturn the will of the people. That's what this is ultimately about. He, he was losing in the ballot boxes, so now he's taking the country by force. But the question remains for me is, then what? You're like, What do you do once you've swallowed this, the, a country this size, as you point out? What do you do? Do you really want that kind of a headache? Plus, if you consider that there's a very good chance— that even his own citizens in Russia are scratching their heads saying, we don't want this. We liked our strong man so much as he was improving our economy and maybe maybe making people, uh, making people respect Russia on the world stage for whatever twisted reason. But do they really want to be the occupying force of a, basically a brother nation on their border? I don't think that they do. But right now, I think it is entirely Putin's call – and I think that 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 what we can hope for is that it's not too bloody, and in the aftermath of it, he 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 comes to regret it. So, assuming there's some kind of civil war that goes on, those forces that are pro-Russia, pro-Putin, they might be in the minority, but we know they already exist. And then, obviously, the forces loyal to a free Ukraine. Is it our responsibility and NATO's uh, responsibility at that point if it gets into a a bloody civil war kind of situation? that we continue to give them armaments, that we play almost the role that Pakistan played uh, with us in Afghanistan where they're supporting they're supporting uh, the Taliban, but in essence they're also having a relationship with us. So why it, it was a difficult call to decide whether to arm the Ukrainians was this notion you're taking this basically much, much weaker power that even with the armaments is not going to be able to hold off the Russian bear. And do we want to get entangled in that kind of a relationship where we're kind of propping up a much, much weaker uh, state in a, fur- a further off part of the world? I and mean, that's basically Europe's problem, not ours. I don't know. I don't believe that it's going to be NATO's responsibility, but you don't know how these things are going to spin. I think that Biden said the obvious thing at the outset of this, that we're not putting troops in there, because if you think about it, what are the different scenarios? We say we're going to put troops in there and then we don't. That's not good. We say we're going to put uh, troops in there. He invades anyway, and then we we have to put troops in there because we've said we're going to now we're suddenly in a ground war with with the Russians in Ukraine. That doesn't sound like a scenario. And the, the, the third scenario is that it works, and he, we bluff him away. Well, you better hope you get that option because the other one, or, the other two Or the fourth one is what we always do. We turn to our criminals in action, the CIA, the rogue agency that has no checks and balances, Give them an open checkbook, say arm the insurgents, arm the freedom fighters, figure out how to get those weapons across the border, and then we're engaged as we were in South America. You can't make a military with a checkbook that can stand up. Maybe you can make one that, that can, can stand up in, you know, 
in pick a country in Sri Lanka, but you can't do one that's going to stand up against the Russians. There are there are the, you, yeah, know, but you use the Afghan model. Uh, we did it with the Mujahideen. The, the Afghan Jimmy the, Carter started that with the, the Mujahideen. Af- yeah, but the Afghan model, we're talking what 70,000 troops. This, they have one hundred and fifty, and they're just scratching the surface. I on understand. That I understand, but there is a model here that you can wear down an aggressor. That if an aggressor comes into your territory, you can't win the war initially, but you can wear them down. It's a giant piece of real estate on a giant border of their own country. This is not a satellite effort like Afghanistan was. This is their own country. I, I don't I don't see it. I, I don't see it. I, I think that the hope has to be that Putin finds some strategic way to back out. The Chinese whisper in his ear. His own citizens don't like it. And they basically back off and, and you know, gain some kind of strategic win for Putin and, and whatever. Yeah, but however if, he if, you're the, if you're the red Chinese, you're looking at this and you're, you're licking your chops over Taiwan and you're saying this is this is a perfect opportunity to see what the world order would be like. We've been threatening to invade Taiwan since its uh, uh, formation, Formosa to Taiwan, when Chiang Kai-shek fled there. We've been banging the war drums against them all the time. We have effectively shut down the Hong Kong. We have effectively shut it down, destroyed their democracy, destroyed their freedoms. And you know they lust for Taiwan. Yeah, but what do you, what do you think, if, they, if, if she is, is staring at the, at the TV now, and looking at the markets now, knowing his love, like stability is a big thing. Do you think he's saying this as a test run for Taiwan is looking good for him or looking bad? No, no. I think it's looking very good for well, him. Well, he could always have taken Taiwan. The only reason that he hasn't is like, what is, how's the world going to look at it? What kind of impact is it going to have? How is it going to, what dominoes might fall? This looks like a mess. If you're she getting isolated like this, he is not happy. I'm, I'm convinced he, he, he's not happy. Well, you can't isolate him because he produces. He's the Walmart of production for the world. We all depend on Red China for all our products. So you can only isolate him out ever so much because where are you going to get all the products that we're so dependent upon? Even during our, uh, our uh, lockdown and our pandemic, most of the products that we needed came from Red China in the middle of that, even though many were saying that's where the origin of uh, the Wuhan virus came from. This is our enemy. Many people thought, well, maybe they developed it in a lab. Maybe it was an experiment went awry. And yet we've now imported more products from Red China than we ever have before. Which tells you that they would be very susceptible to any kind of economic um, sanctions that would be against them. I think that the Chinese like stability. I, there's not, from a military perspective, there's nothing stopping them from taking Taiwan 10 years ago. The reason they don't do it is because they see this kind of of reaction and say, listen, you know, sovereign states don't mess around with other sovereign states. I, I, I don't think that this is I, I think the way the country, the, the world has pulled together against Russia is a warning to China. Well, let's go to the phones. Uh, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I've said about all I can say on this subject, uh, at least in terms of my conversation with Anthony Weiner. But I think, Anthony, it's time that we tap into our many listeners out there who are not necessarily sure, because remember, you don't really have the Reagan formula. It's almost like, where is the last Reaganite? You almost don't have a Reaganite out there. You have the Trumpers. uh, You have, obviously, those that support uh, Joe Biden. And those who are sort of scratching their heads and just wanting the entire situation to play out because they're not necessarily sure if this benefits uh, anybody by getting involved. 1-800-848-9222. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 
77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Anthony Weiner, the only ones to declare war against Vladimir Putin, is the hackers group Anonymous. They took down RTV, which is his uh, uh, his propaganda machine, uh, Russian television. They uh, definitely damaged uh, a lot of the uh, computer infrastructure uh, in the Kremlin. But uh, Anonymous has gone to war against the United States previously, has gone to war against Russia. They're the only ones willing to take uh, Vladimir Putin on at this point. Let's go to the phones if we can. It's uh, Rick who's calling from Long Island. Your turn to be heard here with uh, uh, Anthony Weiner and yours truly, Curtis Lee on WABC, Rick. Yeah, good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, yeah, I just wanted to take uh, Anthony's statement to task uh, that was in the beginning of the show, um, making a, a claim or a supposition at least that uh, there was something going on possibly between Putin and Trump as opposed to maybe this administration and there's three points that I'd like to bring out. And, you know, number one, Trump was um, impeding the pipeline to Germany during his tenure. And number two, he provided the Javelin missiles to the Ukraine, which is, certainly isn't pro-Russian. And most importantly, he was keeping the price of oil down instead of inflating it to this enormous price, which is, a part, you know, giving a ton of cash to Russia, which is making an economic and uh, – political environment possible to do these kind of shenanigans, you know, and then to use the Mueller investigation as your top resource in source material to go back to the supposition on Trump. That's like, you know, typical Democratic talking point there. All right. Well, give uh, Anthony an opportunity. You gave him a a whole entree there of uh, different questions. Go for it, Anthony. Well, I mean, I appreciate the call, Rick. I, I, I mean, uh, just the last point first. I mean, Mueller was Republican. The FBI did the investigation. Law enforcement, Republicans pro-law enforcement, FBI did the investigation. And much of what came out in the Mueller report was never refuted. The meetings with Trump and his family, not refuted. People who pled guilty to hanky-panky with the Russians, not refuted. As a matter of fact, why would you take a pardon if you didn't do anything wrong? I mean, ask um, ask the people that all the people that he pardoned in that investigation. Yes, it's true. The missile, the javelins eventually went to the Ukraine. But that famous perfect phone call between Trump that he was impeached for was him withholding aid, defensive aid to the Ukraine. Remember why the call took place. Zelensky was trying to find out why are you holding up the funds so we can defend ourselves against the Russians? And Trump said, yeah, it would be a shame if anything happened to that aid. Can you help me defeat my opponent, Joe Biden, and give me some dirt on Joe Biden? So that's the public record. As a matter of fact, I don't know anyone who disputes that that type of thing. And remember, he stood up, the president of the United States, next to Putin in Geneva, stood up there and said, why would I distrust anything Putin says when asked whether he believes his own intelligence agencies? Well, I ask you, Rick, I ask the other listeners to this show, do you trust our security agencies or do you trust Putin? Donald Trump said the words, I trust Putin. I, Anthony Weiner, do not trust Putin, and I think we can see why. Well, I, as an American, don't trust any of the Ukrainians. I look at Manafort. He had his beak in the trough. Hunter Biden, Burisma, he had his beak in the trough. 
it seems uh, Americans and Europeans love to flock to the Ukraine to to make love to the oligarchs. Uh, Putin has his own oligarchs in the, in the Ukraine. It's like a cauldron of corruption. Yeah, but hold on. But that's some, some kind of equivalency there. In 2016, when the Republicans were putting together, and there are some Republicans who listen to the show, were putting together their platform for the 2016 election. And there was language that's going to go in there, fairly standard language. You know, the United States has to stand up to the Soviet Union. That was taken out by Manafort, the campaign chairman at the time. We found this out during the proceedings in his trial that he went to jail for and had to be pardoned for. He was the chairman of the Trump campaign, took out language that might have offended Mr. Putin. That was good. That's, that's very different than, than, than whatever you think Hunter Biden may or may not have done. I mean, there's a big difference here. And so when people are like, I'm shocked you're accusing the Trump folks of having close relationship with the Russians. This is the second week in a row someone called in so shocked at that allegation. No one is disputing it. Yeah, but, it, but, it existed. But, but you just dismiss Hunter Biden. Like, what the hell is he doing with Burisma? He knows nothing about the uh, energy business, and yet he's getting $50,000 uh, a month to serve on a board. For what purpose? I, I have no – that's probably right. Through his father. That's, well, that part's the wrong. the U.S. government. That's part wrong. That part's wrong. I mean, Not the optics father. are horrible, Anthony. The, whether the optics are good or bad, and I don't think the optics are particularly good, th- there's a big difference between the optics being bad and someone doing a crime. Okay, Manafort did a crime. Manafort admitted he did a crime. Manafort had to be pardoned by the person he protected for that crime. So it's way different than you think, oh, this looks bad that this guy got a job with Burisma. And you and I, you, you know, if we, if, if we you know, st- stepped on the CEO of Burisma right now, we probably wouldn't know. It. I understand. But it's all about <laughs> energy, as you know. That's, that's uh, Putin's strength. He controls the energy flow to all of Europe. Uh, the Ukraine obviously have their own sources of energy that could be very right. beneficial. Right. By the way, and, and Burisma, if you recall, and this was it's a little bit in the weeds, but Burisma at the time they were hiring Hunter Biden was trying to get out from under the notion that they were controlled by Putin. This was their act of independence. I'm, we're going to get Americans on here to show that we've cleaned up our act. Uh, but, yeah, but, you know, it's funny. It's funny how people are so concerned about energy independence and can accept and, and, uh, 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 when it comes to supporting Anthony. supporting alternatives to, 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 to the stuff it's that— It's $4 that, a gallon at the pump. It's $4 uh, to get—but but why— $4 have, here. And in well, California, you're looking at six, well, seven, why eight. Can't, why can't I persuade guys like you when it's $2 and a buck fifty to invest more in renewables so that we don't have this problem in the Middle East, we don't have the problem with Russia? Why are you so short-sighted that you don't realize energy independence and, 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 going, to, and, and going to an increased reliance on renewables is in our—not only economic best interest— but in our defense best interest. Well, let's go, if we can, to Marianne, who's calling from Garden City. You're on with Anthony Weiner. Yours truly, Curtis Lee. We're here on WABC. Marianne? Hi, good afternoon. Um, I was actually getting my blood boiling uh, listening to Anthony these last uh, couple of minutes. But my original intent was to say uh, we could have done a lot more. Uh, we know that if the Keystone Pipeline was reopened, that that would have taken a lot of cash out of Putin's pocket and we may not be looking at this today. And I really take exception to you, Anthony, and the way that you twist and turn and pretzelize a word I just made up. <laughs> it's a good the one. The point of the liberals. And, it, it, you know, what you were just saying about uh, Trump, how can you not say, make the same similar statements about Biden? We all know that he's bought and paid for. You don't turn, you don't turn off your own energy supply to make another adversary rich. And I just want to get your point of view on that, both you, Curtis and Anthony. 
Well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, look, and pretzelize is a great word. Uh, look, I, I think that at the end of the day, oil prices are in, are really high right now, and this is a good moment for Putin. I get that. And inflation has a lot to do with that. The way we've come back after COVID has a lot to do with it. Frankly, I believe there's manipulation going on in the energy markets by the people that benefit from it. Um, But I think that for years and years and years, we have all been arguing, both in the Middle East and with Russia, that the single best tool that we could use is to be less reliant on oil in general. Oil is a fungible thing. Oil, whether it's produced here or produced there, it goes out into the international energy market and people bid on it. And if there's a lot of demand, people are going to, the price is going to go up. When people start driving, the price is going to go up. When people start shipping internationally again, the prices are going to go up. I, but I, I think that it's very difficult in the midst of a war to think that energy policy is going to stop Putin now, from doing now, what he you wants. Do, you are aware that there are those, uh, we'll talk about uh, sort of the AOC wing of the Democratic Party, who believe that high prices for oil means less fossil fuel will be burnt which is good because it'll make for a greener planet. So they're not really all that upset that it's $4 a gallon or soon to be $5 a gallon and the West Coast double whatever ours is. They actually believe this forces uh, forces less use of fossil fuels. They're well, not going to say it necessarily we, publicly. Right. Well, we tax things all the time. We want people to do less. We, want, we tax energy. We tax tobacco. We tax things that people want to do less. The difference is energy, in a lot of cases, you can't, Figure out you can't do without filling up your your tank with gas, but we can do other things. We can incentivize the use of of renewables, and we've tried to do that. We, being progressives, Democrats, even a lot of Republicans, trying to do that over the course of a generation, nonstop uh, opposition from the oil and gas industry. And now I see the board all lit up with people doing the bidding of the oil and gas industry. You know, no, that's not the that, that's not the solution. And by the way, there's nothing we can do tomorrow. These are long term things that we have to do, and we need to have government. All right, but d- let's go back to uh, President Joe Biden. So one of his initial measures was to uh, close the Keystone Pipeline, and then all of a sudden we started importing more of crude oil from Russia and Saudi Arabia, which to me didn't make sense because we were becoming energy. Uh, sufficient. That means we were producing enough oil and natural gas to meet our own means, and we were exporting once again. Now, why are we depending on these other countries? Because we turned off a pipeline to Canada, which got all pissed off at us, because that was a way that they also could keep the price of natural gas and also uh, fossil fuel oil down. Yeah, well, you're confusing a couple things. One, you're confusing cause and effect. Yes, the, the, the pipeline closed, but it was at a time that we were energy independence. By the way, the first time we became energy independent as a country was under what president? Barack Obama. Barack Hussein Obama. There you go. Take your head off. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I, I think that, that there is a lot going on in the marketplace right now that is leading to, 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 to relative scarcity and higher prices. I get that. I don't believe that pumping more and more and more and more oil absent making decisions to shift away from fossil fuels is a smart policy. And we're learning today that it was not a smart policy. If we would have pivoted more earlier, Putin would not have the leverage he now, has today. Now, a question, though, as the Democrats face uh, a real tsunami come these midterm elections, as prices keep going up, uh, and every time an oil price goes up, other prices affected by oil go up. So many of our products 
that we don't necessarily think uh, are made of oil, in fact, are. It's like almost half of everything we touch is made out of some form of uh, petroleum. Uh, this does not bode well for Democrats either trying to seek re-election or getting elected uh, to the House of Representatives. You do realize this is probably just going to uh, uh, bring in a red uh, tsunami. Yes, Sherlock, it's not a great, uh, not a great little playing field here. Yeah, I would agree. If you have a combination of inflation, which we have, yes, you have a com- you have a disease that's still you know, at, at large in our country that's still, I mean, it's, it seems to be waning, thank God, but it's still largely, you know, something that we're subject to. If you have the structural thing that usually happens that the out party is more animated in midterm elections than the in party is. Yeah, this is not a, not a good lineup. I would not want to be an incumbent in this environment. That's why you're seeing a lot of Democrats uh, re, not resign, but choose not to run for reelection. Plus, redistricting in a lot of the big states is not controlled by Democrats, so they're drawing maps that are not favorable to Democrats. It is not a great playing field right now, for I sure. I would think that the Hail Mary pass for the Democrats is that the United States Supreme Court, even with a new United States Supreme Court justice uh, just having been nominated, assuming she gets through the vetting process, uh, if they uh, overturn Roe v. Wade— that may actually cause uh, a stifling of the red tsunami since most of the voters and those who are most diligent in voting are women. Uh, And that has always been the group, especially in national elections, that has turned the course one way or the other, the female vote. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the gender is now less of an indicator of how people are going to vote than it had been in the past. Like in this last election, it basically mirrored basically your party affiliation. Independence broke for Democrats. I think our saving grace as a party, the Democrats, is just the 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 Trump effect to some degree. I think that Trump meddling in in races all around the country the Republican Party not sure what it wants to be in this iteration. Does it is it the Trump always party? Is it are there other elements that are going to get some some breathing room? But generally speaking, I I, I don't I, I don't think that, now there there is the big variable of abortion in another sense is that if it does serve to scare a whole bunch of voters who would not, are more casual voters to come out in presidential elections to say wait a minute. Some big, big things are happening in our country that I don't approve of, and they start going out to the to the polls. Then, then you throw out the models. If like these really high turnouts start happening in the midterm elections, like happened in two thousand seventeen, eighteen, after Donald Trump came in, and all these voters are like, "Wait a minute, you mean this is for real? This guy's really the president now?" It animated a lot of people. Um, that could happen, but if but if you're looking at the map right now as as a Democrat, you're pretty worried. Our number is one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. To the phones we go, Anthony Weiner, and it's Sam patiently waiting on the line in Woodside. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Sammy. Yes, go ahead, Sam. Uh, Let's flip the script and go from Sam to Robert in Staten Island. Uh, Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Robert. 
Yes, uh, I, I just wanted to make the point that uh, President uh, Zelensky uh, ran on a uh, peace platform. But uh, the problem is uh, he's in a tough situation. If he uh, told the Russians that, uh, uh, that the Ukraine won't join uh, NATO or uh, place missiles on, on its territory, the neo-fascist would just uh, slit his throat. So it's, it's a delicate situation for him. I think probably he wants to do the right thing and, and avoid war, but uh, he's in a tough um, predicament. Who are the neo-fascists? Well, there are some uh, neo-fascists. In fact, uh, they're part of uh, some of the Ukrainians uh, who are battling the Ukrainian separatists who are allied with Russia. Small group. Yeah, it's a small group. Remember, you know, the, the, this, is a, this is a group of people who lost, what, 15 million people in World War II? I mean, by the way, we lost, like, what, 400,000? They lost 15 million people fighting the fascists. Like this whole ruse that, 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 uh, uh, that Putin is using, I'm, I'm trying to defascify. I mean, yes, there are some elements of fascism in every country, including our own, but I don't believe that that's a real thing. Look, the, the, the NATO thing, having missiles on our border, this is a ruse. This is a subterfuge. This is not a real... If that was what this was really about, then there can be negotiations around what types of thing. But that, that, by the way, is true whenever we support a country anywhere in the world. There are these kinds of concerns and, and about antagonizing and everything else. There's no – they're not members of, of NATO today. They're not imminently going to become members of NATO. Zelensky has said if you need us to remain neutral, just say the word. I'll use the word neutral. I'm a peace guy anyway. This is about Putin and his voracious desire to, in some way, make himself an empire builder. Well, I think this is just another um, uh, idea that suggests if you ever had nuclear weapons, you better not give them up. Because almost every country that I can think of that's given up its nuclear weapons other than South Africa uh, has paid a price. We saw that with Gaddafi in Libya. He gave up his uh, nuclear arsenal. Uh, and he got a 22 uh, shot right up his tuchus. Uh We see the Ukraine gave up their nuclear arsenal, which was sizable. And you saw how uh, Putin has absolutely no fear of them whatsoever. So if you're Iran, if you're the Ayatollahs, you're saying, man, we got to get those nuclear weapons. That's the only way you protect yourself ultimately. It's the only thing that seems to put fear in other countries is if you have your own nuclear arsenal, like a Pakistan does like some other countries around the world does, like Israel does. So it almost uh, suggests to them that's why you want to develop nuclear weapons. Well, that's always the argument for getting a nuclear weapon. The problem is, not the problem, I mean, the, the, the argument kind of stops it. Well, if you're Iran, to use against who? Who is your border? You know, I mean, it's no longer Iraq. I mean, who, are you con- who do you need it for? If you're Pakistan, well, okay, you can argue that India has them, therefore we have to have them. I mean, yeah, you can argue, you can always argue, well, if we just got a bigger gun, if we just got a bigger missile, if we just got a bigger weapon, that would be the, the answer. But remember, the, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, the United States, we're a next level compared to these other countries. Ukraine is never going to get to a place that they're going to be able to arm themselves, and nor would we want them to. We want them to be investing in other ways of building up their country, not trying to get more and more weapons. We rely, you know, moments like this, we realize we rely on the sanity of the leaders around the world to use common sense, and to respect whatever tools the other nations have. Right now, Putin has a, an advantage over, the, over Ukraine in, in, in force and power, and he knows ultimately 
that no one's going to stop him. And we just hope that he does the right thing and it proves not to be in his it proves to be in his self-interest to do so. The only self-interest we have left with him is economic unfortunately. If uh, in fact it meant more death, more destruction, more carnage. Uh, would it behoove Zelensky to leave or to continue to battle uh, till let's say the very end? Well, it's easy for me to say. I mean, it's easy for me to say. I mean, I, I obviously I find it it must be very, um, very empowering for his citizens to see him do these Zoom calls from a bunker and saying, I'm staying here. I've lived through the night. I might not make it till tomorrow. That's what you want in a leader. But it's easy for me to say, I mean, that, that you, you I don't believe he's making stuff up when he says that the um, that the, the the Russians are targeting him. Oh, there's no doubt. They, regime change. Uh, we're the ones who created that term. And our intention was always to take out leaders during a regime change. We did it in Libya. We did it in Iraq. So in many instances, it's almost as if uh, Vladimir Putin, while staying on the sidelines when we went at Gaddafi and staying on the sidelines when we went at Saddam Hussein, is uh, saying, I think I'm going to try this regime change thing. You know, uh, you guys have certainly played that card. You always have big empires going and dabbling in other parts of the world and coming up with a rationale to do it. And, you know, we have a compelling state interest to care about the oil underneath Iraq or its, its position in the world and what Kuwait is and everything else. This, I think, is different. This is a, a border war with one country basically changing. Well, we'll continue to discuss this and so much more. The reemergence of Cuomo with paid advertising on Monday and obviously the crime and subway crisis that we have here in New York City. Anthony Weiner on the left, yours truly on Curtis Lee on the right as we continue on WABC. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station. 77 WABC. As we continue our discussion here, Anthony Weiner, uh, we had touched on it briefly when we were discussing uh, the war in the Ukraine, the invasion by the Russians. There will be sizable number of refugees who, even if things settle down, are never going to want to return to the motherland. They're not going to want to return to the Ukraine. Many of them have relatives here in New York. New York City is the largest outpost of Ukrainians outside of the Ukraine itself. Governor Hochul has already uh, said we welcome uh, Ukrainian refugees if they come. Uh, Should our country as a whole uh, welcome uh, as many Ukrainians uh, as possible uh, who might decide not to go back? Well, we should welcome refugees from everywhere. And that's that's one of the basic creeds of our country. I think that people that come here fleeing persecution, fleeing war, um, that's what this country has come to stand for. Maybe this will be the kind of reminder that— Congress needs about, you know, showing some some support for that idea. New York City, if we're nothing else, we're a city of refugees. Um, I hope it doesn't come to that. And, you know, Ukraine has to its west Europe. And I think that that's going to they're going to bear a brunt. And and I I also, you know, I imagine that a lot of Ukrainians are hoping to return to their homes. I don't think anyone, you know, one of the things that people don't 
seem to realize when we have conversations about immigration is that very often the hardest thing to do is to pick up from your homeland and come. One of the reasons why New York has such strong DNA and such strong people and such a vibrant economy is because the people that come here are the toughest. We, we have picked up from other countries, packed our kit bag, and traveled overseas and started fresh lives. So people that leave under those circumstances generally are, are pretty determined. But by and large, they want to be home. Well, I, I think uh, it'll be a bipartisan issue. I don't think you're going to find many Democrats or Republicans uh, who wouldn't welcome uh, Ukrainian refugees. But uh, tomorrow is the start uh, in the state of New York of the Republican uh, state convention out in Nassau County. And although the conversation would normally involve their candidates running for statewide office and congressional seats uh, that obviously some Republicans are beefing about because they don't have control of the drawing of the lines and not the majority in Albany. You know what the number one subject is going to be, Anthony Weiner. What is going on in the mind of former Governor Andrew Cuomo? Uh, give us any insight or intel that you can think of that has caused him to want to start running quasi-political ads. I would call him not a full political ad because it doesn't say I'm running for a particular office. But it sure seems to be paving the way for his reemergence in uh, the politics of New York State. Yeah, well, here's what he's doing. He is trying to see, to recreate what would happen in an election, and that is he would put TV commercials on the air, and people would watch them, and then they would answer pollsters' questions whether they would support Cuomo or not. If he finds out that it's not working, he's no worse off. He's just put put some more, you know, lipstick on the on the what's the expression, lipstick on a pig or whatever it's called. So he really has no reason not to spend this money. It's either to get him prepared to run for an election, drive up his positives, drive down his negatives a little bit. Or to let him go on with the rest of his life spending 19 or $20 million on improving people's view of him, no matter what it is he decides to do next, write a book, have a TV show, um, or, or whatever. So it's not all that surprising. I, you know, I hate to say this because too many people are drawing parallels between us. An important parallel that they should not draw is that I accepted responsibility, served time in prison, came back and kept my head down. He left office a couple of months ago with with an impeachment trailing him and and says he's not accountable for anything and believes he did all the right thing. Putting that aside, it's a very similar dynamic that I faced in 2013. I had a bunch of money as well. And I looked at a similar scenario where I had um, Scott Stringer running for controller. And in this case, he has Letitia James running for attorney general, a head to head. And the mayoral field that I saw was kind of busy. And what he sees is a mayor of Phil that's now kind of busy. It's got Hochul. It's got Tom Swasey. It's got Jumani. Uh, uh, Jumani um, Williams. Jumani Williams. So he may make one of two calculations after he sees the data, after he sees the polling. He may say, look, I can win a head-to-head. Or he may say, no, I actually need a busy field, so I need a smaller percentage of the field to win. I'm going to go ahead and run for governor again. I think what he's going to find, if I had a, if I had a just guess— I think he's going to find that the, the that the numbers his numbers don't move as much as he might think, even if he does put on ten or fifteen million dollars on the air. I don't. I mean, it's going to have some effect. Advertising moves people. Oh, no doubt. But um, well, I don't yeah, think you know. It's interesting, uh, Anthony. You brought up your own circumstance, and I want to uh, sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat 
because uh, I mentioned this before when I was standing in the gardens in Forest Hills. It was the annual Flag Day ceremony, which uh, they're very uh, patriotic in in doing. They're very meticulous in doing. They have a set program. I went there uh, with uh, my two youngest sons, Carter and Hunter. We were living there in Forest Hills, not far from you. And you were there as you had been like every year, except you weren't just there to participate in the Flag Day ceremonies as previously you had as the congressman or now the citizen. You were announcing that day that you were running for the mayoralty of the city of New York about a year after you had left the House. Everybody said, ah, come on. What are you? It's going to crash your brain. Next poll came out, you're number one. You are ahead of Christine Quinn, who was uh, the anointed one from Bloomberg, had all the editorial endorsements, the Post, the News, Newsday, the Times. You shot to number one. And then unbeknownst to everybody, soon after, Elliot Spitzer, who we thought was annihilated, in two days went out, gathered enough signatures to then challenge Scott Stringer that was the shock of all shocks because I think uh, Scott Stringer assumed he had pretty much of a layup in the Democratic primary. And then Spitzer started to spend all of his money. Was he using your meteoric success at going to number one in the polls uh, as an example of what he thought he could do in, uh, in taking the controller race from Scott Stringer on the Democratic primary? Yeah, I think so. But he also made what was already kind of a circus into even more of a circus. I don't know if you remember New York Magazine, one of my top nine favorite magazines, by the way. Um, New York Magazine did a cover that had half my face and half Spitzer's face. Like, And it became, the zeitgeist of the day became, all right, this is the comeback of these two guys. And, we, and so anything I tried to do, I kind of had him anchored to me. <clears throat> but there's no doubt, I get the feeling he even said this publicly, that he saw the relative ease at which I got back in, was welcome back, et cetera, as one of the reasons he got in. I will say this, and Andrew Cuomo's going to notice this as well. Yes, that happens. But then institutions start to fight back. The institutions of politicians that don't want, didn't want me aren't going to want him. The press is going to feel like, okay, we've got to do $20 million worth of pushback to compensate for what, what he is doing. That's going to be the psychology of it. It's going to be pretty rough going for him. Um, and, and he has another problem. <clears throat> I was running against a fairly weak field that eventually gave us Bill de Blasio. But uh, he's running against – Hochul looks pretty strong right now. And even if Hochul wasn't strong, Swazi seems pretty strong too. Like it, it doesn't seem like this is a really soft field. So I think that he is going to have a very different experience than I had. All of that being said, as I said in the previous question – when you have 10 or 12, $15 million to put on the air, it does move people. People do see the advertisements. Well, and let me give you an example. Uh, you obviously worked within the Democratic Party circles. I don't know if you were extremely friendly with the Cuomos or just were professionally uh, uh, dealing with them. As you know, I've been adversaries of the Cuomos for so long. So I know all the players from Joe Pococo to some of his innermost uh, trusted advisors who are still with him out in that compound uh, that he lives in, uh, out in the Hamptons. I got to believe that in the back of their minds, once they do all these ads and they do their focus groups, and whether it's the gubernatorial race or even a one-on-one with Tish James, they say, you know, we can still get in this race in the last two days. That's what Spitzer did. He gathered enough signatures to qualify in the last two days. He hadn't given a hint 
that he was going to run. And then all of a sudden he puts out an army, and with money, you can put out an army of signature takers and then qualify for one of these races. He might actually be following that Spitzer approach. Don't collect signatures on March 1st, which is the uh, start of the uh, signature collection point. Do it in the last few days uh, when the signatures have to be turned. Yeah, in. I don't think there's any. I don't. It used to be much more difficult to get on the ballot. I don't think it's much of an obstacle to him, especially with his money. And also, he's gonna. He. I mean, he didn't lose all of his support. You still have institutions and individuals that still support him. Getting on the ballot won't be the issue. But let, let me posit this. Okay, let's say he makes the ballot. Let's say he runs against Tish James and gets his butt kicked. Is that? Is that? the out game, is that his end game that he wants? Um, or will that lead to the footnote in history being, and the voters decided they agreed that he was this person who was accused of all these things. Um, so I think that he's going to want to know he has a path to victory. So I think he'll do the, he'll do the ads starting about now, spend a bunch of money, go out in the field with a real poll and, and, and have let's see if he'll listen to them. Have pollsters tell him, listen, this is a message that's working. This is one that's not. We, we see a path for you to win. Everything's got to go just right. And then he's going to go out and raise money and get wildly outspent for a change. Remember something. He is not the anything. He's not the governor right now. Governors can basically raise whatever they want. Hochul's that person. And I don't think you're going to have too many people rushing to write checks for him against Tish James. If the polls show that Tish James is, you know, is, is do I, I, I think he's, he's not going to be someone who can go out and raise 20 and $30 million at a, in a bucket. He's going to be a challenger again. So all of these things seem stacked against him. But the one thing that we can't know for sure is how much his ego is driving all of this. And that's a pretty powerful force. Now, throughout New York State, and I know it's going to be the theme of the uh, Republican state convention that convenes in Nassau County, hoping that they will let me onto the floor of the convention. We don't know that yet, Anthony. I'm considered an outlier. But when I show up, if you're listening out there, you better let me in or the whole world will be watching. But putting that aside, the number one issue is going to be this no-cash bail. It is the path to victory that some Republicans uh, feel that they can ride because of what happened in Nassau County, the changeover in Nassau County. In fact, the author of the no-catch bill, Stavinsky, uh, has decided he's retiring from politics. Not only did he lose as the Nassau County uh, uh, District Attorney, which I felt, I don't know where he thought he could win as uh, DA, but he's not even going to run for his state Senate seat again. He's had it. He's washing his hands, said, I'm out of here. I'm going into the private sector. Uh, the Republicans want, for their political purpose, for cousins to dig in for Hochul to dig in, for Hasty to dig in and say, we're not changing, there's no cash bail. And Cousins gives every indication to anyone she talks to, even the Cardinal. The Cardinal went to visit her just to talk about police issues because of the recent uh, police death. And she was like, if you're here to try to lobby me on changing, you know, the no cash bail, forget it, Cardinal. He said, no, I'm really, I understand. She's volatile on this. And as you know, if she has the power not to put it on the floor. What would you suggest that the Democrats do? Because let's face it, that is a wedge issue that could cost some Democratic seats. Right. It is. And it's that way because I think most people don't understand it. I mean, they see crime is up and they hear, you know, you're not having bail anymore meeting. I know people are being released out onto the streets who are doing crime. That isn't happening. But it is a tough issue to talk about because it requires a certain amount of nuance at a time that people don't have a lot of patience for nuance because they see crime going up. Just so you understand that people who are standing before the court and requests for bail 
those are people that are innocent until proven guilty. These are just citizens like the listeners out there. And the question is, if you're saying $250 to someone who can afford to pay it for the same exact crime to someone who can't afford to pay it, it means they're staying in Rikers Island under horrible circumstances. We're paying the bill to to, to put them up. And that basically what it, it, it said is that if you believe that this person will come back, if you believe that this person's not a flight risk, if you believe the person will show up for court, then they they should not be kept in, in Rikers Island. That's what the question is. And a lot of the people that have been out, you know, I see people say all the time to me in newspaper stories now, this person was out on bail and he did a crime. And they're saying, you see, the no cash bail doesn't work. No, no. Those person had a bail. They paid the bail and then committed the crime. That's been going on time immemorial. Unfortunately, it happens from time to time. But that's not what this issue is about. But you're right. It's a nuanced, tough political issue. Someone has to do what you just did, which is pause for a moment, listen to someone explain it. And I do think that there is a way that should be explored like they've done in other states that you've mentioned in the past, they do in New Jersey, to try to figure out a way to figure out in advance whether someone is going to go out and do a violent crime, which is really hard to do. There's no perfect test for that. Or, or a danger to themselves, a, a real danger to themselves well, or a danger to Well, a danger other people. to themselves, you can still keep them. There are other ways. You can, they, they, you can institutionalize someone who you think is a danger to themselves. But the problem is that up until now, bail has been a jail sentence. It was never supposed to be that way. That's not the way it is in law. That's not the way the way it's supposed to be in the Constitution. It's never supposed to be that way. And for want of a couple of hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, which for many people is not a big deal, for a lot of people it's the reason they were in Rikers Island, including someone who was never convicted of a crime who wound up hanging himself. Well, you know, it's interesting because it really becomes a downstate versus the rest of the state issue. When I've had conversations with these folks, I said, you do realize that most of the uh, judges uh, that either are appointed or elected downstate are very liberal. They tend to be liberal progressive. They're not hang judges. They're not reactionary right-wing judges. The fear that Hochul, and more importantly, Cousins and Generis in the state Senate, because he's the number two guy there from Astoria, and Hasty have, is that when you go upstate, there are a lot of Republican judges who won election or been appointed who are not even lawyers. You don't have to be a lawyer in a lot of places. And they are afraid that when black and Hispanic defendants come before them, that they're going to impose draconian uh, bail situations. So even though that hasn't gotten a lot of airplay because, you know, it's inside baseball, it's one of the reasons that Hasty and Cousins and the supermajority uh, of the Democrats in the Albany have really dug in against Eric Adams, who went up there to lobby them. He couldn't lobby them. Uh, he was rejected. Is that they have this whole issue about, quote, white judges upstate who are Republicans, many of them not lawyers, that if you reimpose bail again, they're going to set draconian bail measures. I think we need to have an open discussion about that. Nobody really wants to open up that can of worms. Nobody wants to open up that Pandora's box because it gets down to race again. I know, but there's also a very, very basic question here is if you have not been proven to have committed a crime, should and you and there's no evidence that you're going to flee, that you're going to come back for your trial, should you be kept in prison during that time? And the answer is society has said no. But you, if you're a recidivist, like you had uh, some of these folks are approaching 100, 100 arrests uh, with many convictions along the way, they're, they're showing a recidivist pa- pattern. You just release them back into the Well, streets. you don't. Well, I hate to say this, but if you're out and you have done your time or whatever the previous court has adjudicated your case, 
every time you step before the bar is a fresh is a fresh look at it. I but I hear what you're saying. I would like there to be in what they've done in New Jersey, and I looked it up a little bit um, after we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. They have like a system that takes all of those things into account. Yes, yes, have I you do. been troublesome in the past? And it kind of goes into an algorithm and produces a number yes. that then the judges get, the prosecutor gets, and the defense gets. And you can argue against that number, but it exists. It's not perfect, and they still have some racial disparities emerging, but they're trying to get at what you're talking about. If so, everyone knows, is in on the game, and says, look, this guy's not coming and back. remember, it was bipartisan. Christie was still governor. Totally, totally. Uh, the state senate was controlled by Sweeney. They had a supermajority there, and the state assembly was controlled by it the Democrats. It was Democrat. bipartisan because conservatives, at least used to and still do, believe in reasonable-sized government that doesn't impose its will. Like, if you have not been proven guilty of a crime, no one wants to lock you up, theoretically. But you're right. In New Jersey, and they haven't gotten it perfect, and even the people that have worked on it there said it's not perfect yet, but they're grasping for it. The one thing I don't understand, and I think, and, and, and Mayor Adams has asked for this, is let's at least try something like that. And up to now, the three people in a room up in Albany have said, no, we don't want to touch this. Now, some of it is because our bail, our bail law is relatively new and they want to give it a little time. But I think it's a reasonable position to take. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Anthony Weiner on the left. Yours truly, Curtis Sliwa on the right, taking your calls. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. You know, Anthony, as uh, as uh, we were talking about the Ukraine uh, years ago uh, when Yeltsin was in charge, I spent time in Moscow Took the subways there. We've seen pictures of the subways in Kiev where the residents are using it as a shelter uh, to protect them from bombings or bullets. I got to tell you, when you look at the pictures of their subway stations, just like in Moscow, every station is a museum. They're clean. The bathrooms work. They can handle hundreds of people, men, women, children, the elderly, the infirm. And then you would imagine, God forbid, but hypothetically, if we had a situation in New York City that caused us to have to go into the bowels of New York City and the subway stations, I think there's a lot of a lot of New Yorkers that say, I'd rather take my yeah. chance above ground because of the filth, the, the flotsam, the jetsam, the smells. You, that's the one thing that comes out of this situation in Kiev. Why can't we have subway stations like this? Why can't we have a system that's clean, that's usable, instead of the unusable one that we're continuing uh, to wrestle with because of all the problems that are resulting from it. It's better than it was. I mean, it's better than what you remember when you guys, I mean, look at the difference with subway system today than it was when you guys started patrolling. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I have noticed, you know, I, I live not far from 14th Street in the, um, in the East Village, and we have the New York Post, we took some pictures there not long ago on between A and 1st, it is a bazaar of the worst type. You know, it's a lot of stolen goods, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people reselling what they got at soup pantries and the like. I believe it does seem like there's more homeless all over the city and in the subways. Um, but it's a tough nut as as Mayor Adams is starting. I mean, he knew, but he's he's really now he has a responsibility. 
you know, there's not a law against sitting in the subway. There's not a law against sitting in a subway platform. Arguably, you can say that a lot of the, the no loitering laws about sleeping in the subways, you know, still exist. And most of the people that are there in this circumstance are themselves. No, w- w- there's nowhere to chase them. But I tell you, there was there is one thing though that that is interesting. This is a place where the police and the left and everyone in between is kind of in the same boat. The police don't like responding to EDPs either. They don't like responding to these types of calls. They would like to wash their hands. of the, These are the ones that are most erratic. These are the ones that are most problematic, especially when they're in homes with subway platforms aren't that much. You have no idea what you're going to be walking up to. If we can crack the nut on figuring out someone who's not the police who can go and somehow get these people the care that they, that they need – to treat them with humanity, to get them off the platform, to get them to, to, to just respect everyone else's rights as well. I think you do have the makings of some kind of policy that can unify us. We, we Constantly calling the police to deal with these problems is not the way to go. No, and that's not why they became police officers. Correct. Uh, also. That's right. But uh, it's interesting that they did a survey of the subway, and I had told them uh, there are 30 abandoned stations in the system out of the 472 stations. There are an additional 30 stations that are no longer I didn't used. know that. Sometimes, uh, like uh, if you run across the uh, train buffs, these are generally young men, sometimes young women, they wear hoodies and they stay at the end of the platform. And I can identify them right away because they're writing down the names of the subway cars. They track them in the system. Wow. Uh, my nephew is one of those. And he knows where all of these, uh, we'll call them, hidden subway stations that are no longer occupied are. And I've been to all of them. And there are what I would call, uh, to describe them, mole people. There are homeless people, emotionally disturbed, who live. Use that as a sanctuary, and they venture out. They walk along the tracks. They'll go upstairs because there are vents that you can use. And it's an entire civilization that exists down below. They're just now discovering that. Now, you can uproot them, you can move them, and you have to do that. You can't let them live in those circumstances. But it's still their right not to necessarily go and get shelter unless you uh, designate them to have uh, psychological impairments and they go for a psychiatric observation. So Eric Adams has got to have a program that's not just going to be pushing them around the system or hoping that when the good weather comes, which it's soon to come, Many of them will not want to stay underground because they can just be out and about in the streets and the parks uh, and the venues. Yeah. And if you, you know, if, if you and I were going to sit down and write the law, write the policy, we'd write it kind of the way it is. That if you're going to take someone against their will and put them into a psychiatric institution, you better really know what you're doing. Like if you take someone's liberty away that way, effectively arrest them. And, put them. and so you want the standard to be pretty high. And then you also have to have a place to put them. You have to, I mean, these people, some of these people have multiple problems, multiple issues going on at once. And a lot of them are, you know, when they went back and took a look at the case notes for this guy that pushed this poor woman on the tracks at Times Square, there were, there were professionals writing things in his case sheet. Like he talked about, you know, he's, he, you know, he needs some help before he pushes someone on a subway track. He actually wrote that exact thing in the case notes. The New York Times did the story about it. And this guy, his fear was not getting put to an institution it was being released when he knew that he needed help. It's a really tough thing, but I got to tell you this. Dumping this at the feet of the transit cops or the cops who are in the transit bureau is just not fair to them. It, it, we're not giving them enough tools. They're not giving enough training on dealing with these things. These are people that are supposed to stand between us and criminals. 
not us and people who are, 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 are emotionally disturbed people. Well, that particular person you're referring to, uh, the guy who pushed the Asian woman in front of the oncoming train, I had had two conversations with him in the month prior. I saw him on the shuttle one time, and I always go up to people that I perceive uh, are a little disconnected uh, from reality or they're going through uh, a psychotic episode. First time I had a normal conversation with him. He was very lucid, knew I had run for me, and knew uh, I was the leader of the Guardian Angels. Second time he was on the platform at Times Square, the 1, 2, and 3 train, sitting in the rear, really acting up, people running from him because he was in a tirade. took me about a half hour to calm him down. And you know what the number one problem was? It wasn't that he didn't have his medication. It wasn't that he uh, was hungry because a lot of times they don't have food. They don't have that medication. That's a recipe for them acting up. He needed water. He was dehydrating, and that causes an eruption. So I went. I got him a bottle of water. That had a calming effect. Simple things like this, but you have to know them. Uh, And the whole idea is they shouldn't be in the subway. It's an intolerable place to live. If you didn't have psychological issues at first, let's say for whatever reason you sought sanctuary in the subway, I guarantee you, having been down there many hours, you'll uh, become emotionally unstable living in the subway. Also, we have a way of reporting and discussing these issues that take the humanity out of these situations. Like that guy's sick. He is sick. I mean, people that have bipolar disorder, people that have addictions, this is a sickness. And the idea that we we see this is like, let's round them up and throw them into a pen somewhere. But ultimately, like your guy needed a bottle of water, a lot of people need medication, but some people need a lot more than that. And it defies easy answers because you can't put them all in one bucket. Let's quickly go to Danny calling from Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC with Anthony Weiner and yours truly, Curtis Lee with Danny. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Curtis, before we talk about the no bail, I got a kick out of Zelensky handing out rifles. Can you imagine showing up in the middle of the hipster neighborhood in Brooklyn with the Starbucks. Hey, guys, get your rifles. The Red Army's coming. <laughs> I don't think it would go over too well. But anyway, you know, listen, the reason the Democratic Party is in the tank, Anthony, is there was just had an election across the state. And even in Nassau County, the Democrats came out and voted against the no-bail law. It's very unpopular. But yet, there you are. You're going to explain to us that we just don't understand it. I'm a lieutenant in the police department. My brother was an inspector. My two sons are cops. My brother's a lawyer. But you're going to sit there and tell 65% of the people that we don't understand. Well, let me tell you what you don't understand is that you need to hold people in jail if they're either dangerous or recidivists because somebody eventually is going to hit over the back of the head with a hammer like the lady did in the subway the other night, a recidivist. Nobody's being held on a $50 pair of underwear, their first arrest, but these people do it over and over again. So now the police department, they're not waiting for bail. They give them a DAT right in the station house. Then the cop says, why am I bothering with this? Give the guy a kick in the ass, send him on his way. So now nobody's getting arrested. So these over and over again. But you tell us we just don't understand. Isn't that just so perfect? This is why we're just one Democrat, I think Tom Swazi was said, we need to change this. These people are getting wiped out. Kathleen Rice is retiring. The, uh, the Kaminsky lost by 16 points in Nassau County, a county that Biden won. But you're going to tell us we don't understand. That's just wonderful. I also I appreciate it, Danny. I appreciate your service and the members of your family. I also said that I believe we should change it. But I'm trying to say that, that very often what happens in this coverage is that people see that someone who is out on bail committing a crime and says, you see, the bail reform law uh, didn't work. No, someone's out on bail. That means they were issued bail and they just, uh, while they were on bail, committed a crime. 
I just think that this issue has kind of gotten all jumbled up in the public consciousness. But I agree that something should be done. If you if there's some way to try to predict the future and say we think this guy is going to go out or, or woman is going to go out and commit a crime while on bail, I believe there is a reason to, to have cash bail for that person. But what you're then saying is we want a judge to try to figure out which of the people in front of him they think is going to go do it and not let their biases get in the way and not have two people, one you know, both getting $1,000 uh, bails po- uh, um, uh, against them. One of them that can afford to pay it is out on the street, and one of them that can't afford to pay it is being held until he has his trial a year later. I, I think that was the thing that was trying to be addressed and I think that's the the failure of nuance here. But I, I agree. I, as I've said several times to, to, to Curtis, and I'll say it to you, I think that we can try something close to what New Jersey has tried to do, which is least give the information to the three parties, the prosecutor, the defendant, and the judge, information that would help them make this decision. I trust judges are going to make mistakes, but I also trust that if you give them enough information, they'll make fewer of them. Anthony Weiner up next. We've got to discuss the State of the Union address that President Joe Biden will be making this week. The National Guard that is circling a place that you spent many hours uh, in the House of Representatives and also the convoy that is on their way, uh, possibly numbering about 2000 trucks at this point, having set out from California to time their arrival uh, in the Beltway uh, to approximately hours before the president addresses the nation and the world. Our number is 1-800-848-WABC. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. This uh, week, uh, Anthony Weiner, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, addresses the nation, the State of the Union address, and really the world, because of all the geopolitical issues that are transpiring. In tandem with that, there is a convoy that has left California. It's uh, going across America. Apparently, there are about 2,000 trucks that are part of that convoy. They hope to be in and around the Beltway, uh, circling the area where you spent a great deal of time uh, in your life as a congressman in the halls of Congress. Uh, how do you see all of these separate issues converging? Because the whole world is going to be watching uh, the presidential address. Yeah, it reminds me of when um, President Bush, shortly after 2000, uh, September 11th, you know, it was only a few months later that he appeared before Congress, and and that was a really unifying moment. Obviously, we were under attack, not in a, a not a, a war elsewhere. Um, I believe that much of his of much of Biden's address is going to be to explain to the world what this what the stakes are and what this is about. I think he'll also take a bow for some of the good things that are happening in the economy and try to tee up the midterm elections to some degree. I would be lying to you if I told you I understood what the trucker protest is about. I think up in Canada it was about Mask mandates, where those are falling every day here in New York and around the country, it seems to be less of a concern. I'm I'm all about a good protest. I just I have loved the juxtaposition of of the truckers shutting down the government and shutting down the city up in in Canada and people calling the station saying that's so great of them are doing it. And yet the same with the same people who called about the protest shutting down 
big strips of, of big streets here in New York for Black Lives Matter. Oh, those are terrible protests. I like me a good protest. I think it's a it's a healthy thing, and I, I don't see any anything wrong with it. I think this one might do with a little bit of, of rationale behind it because I do think that much of the mandates – um, mo- much of the mandate that at least motivated the last trucker convoy uh, are disappearing every day. But, you know, there still are mandates uh, all around the country, especially the vaccine mandate. Uh, the last time there was a rally of any significance in Washington, D.C., we saw it was uh, led by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, these were the uh, people against the vaccine mandates, uh, mass mandates. And I noticed that the federal authorities posted marksmen uh, on many of the surrounding buildings when the groups turned out to be mostly mothers, you know, with children. Uh, Is this an overreaction to put so many National Guardsmen uh, outside of the house that you sat in? After January 6th, when they were unprepared for what they got and you had a lot of intermingling of the same types of figures with this protest that were that were on January sixth, no, January sixth, I think they were widely regarded as being woefully unprepared for what they got. This is what we're going to see for a while. January sixth was a shock to the system. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, we had an, a violent insurrection in the halls of the Capitol, taking over the Capitol, chasing members of of the House and Senate. You know, ultimately leading to the deaths of police officers. Someone was shot. You know, just out the doors of of, of the cloakroom where I used to serve. I mean, yeah, if they overreact for a while, good. Let's let's make sure everyone stays safe. And um, and and what we learned on January 6th is that the authorities were not ready. I'd rather them be a little bit too ready in the future for a while. So having all the National Guardsmen there, that's okay. Fences up, National Guardsmen. Yeah, listen, I, I, I we underestimated the power of the of the uh, of the anti of the anti-American insurgency in in the in January sixth, we're not going to. Hopefully, we don't do that again. Now, uh, your impression of the message uh, that the president must give to the nation, not just uh, to uh, sort of deal with all the ruptures that exist both domestically and now internationally, uh, but also to give people the impression he is in charge, he is in control of his faculties, he is a strong leader, and more importantly for your party, the Democrats. To say, boy, we got a guy who's going to lead us into these midterm battles that we're not going to have to worry about because you know there are a lot of people out there who are not going to want to be attached to Biden going into their midterm elections who are Democrats. Well, I think I think the the most important part of his speech is going to be, you know, we as Americans, many of us learn geography based on crises that emerge, and people are learning up on what what it means uh, that well, what this war means, where it came from. We have we have some people who believe what Putin has been saying as the pretense for it. Um, I think a lot of what he has to do is kind of set the table for everyone historically. And a president of the United States in this forum can do that. I also would hope that it's the kind of day that we haven't had very recent, very much recently that we used to have all the time. That when the president stands up and says, you know, we stand with the people of Ukraine, we stand against this aggression, we stand against Putin, both sides of the aisle stand up. Increasingly, it has become anything that Joe Biden says. You've got a fairly a fairly large part of the Republican electorate, or at least a large part of their elected base that says, no, we oppose anything that Joe Biden says. It hasn't been that way in past foreign affairs, and I hope that we return to that space. Well, it was that way with Trump. I mean, uh, I remember watching the State of the Union addresses. It was like uh, a seesaw. When we were kids uh, in the park, a seesaw, 
Trump would say something. Obviously, Republicans would get up. No, but I'm talking about I'm trying to think if there if there was an I mean, Trump had a kind of a charmed presidency that we didn't have these types of foreign engagements that we had to like have that moment unifying moment. Yeah, Trump and unifying, I would not put that those two words in the same sentence. I can't think of a single time that he did that. But he didn't really have those moments. I mean, when, when I was in the House after September 11th, and again, that was sui generis. I'm not sure that you're going to have that kind of moment ever again, maybe ever before. But there was this kind of sense, okay, we're on the same team here. Um, I think all Americans should be on the sides of the Ukraine, uh, of the Ukrainian people, and that the voices on the Fox News that say I'm rooting for Putin should be in the distinct tiny minority and should be treated that way. But the uh, 2003 period when we invaded Iraq, uh, was Bush getting a standing ovation when he did the State of the Union address, or did you already see there was a chasm uh, in terms of support for, you know, war against Saddam Hussein, uh, I don't war know, against Iraq. I can tell you this. By the time 2005 came along and I was running for mayor, yes. I was sprinting away from my vote for that war. <laughs> I mean, I could not run away fast enough. You know, I, I remember a lot of politicians were like wringing their hands. How do I handle this? How do I justify it? I'm like, run away, you know, as fast as you can. You know, so do you regret that vote? Heck yeah, I do. It was well, like the, the worst classic one was Kerry. I'm for it, but I'm against it. I'm for it. I'm against yeah. it. Uh, but that was the, I got to tell you, maybe you disagree with this, but that is the one thing I don't understand about politicians. The American people will buy you saying I made a mistake on that vote. I would do it differently if I had to do it all over again. They're not going to kill you for that. And your opponents run out. of. There's not a lot of gas they can add to that fire once you said that. And yet politicians are so bad at just saying, yep, I blew it. They told me something. I believed it. I got it wrong. There were people out there that got it right. I got it wrong. Halas. Now, you do, you, do you believe, as uh, many do now, that uh, Congress, uh, the Senate, the House has deferred too much of their decision making uh, to the executive office, to the president when it comes to making these kind of decisions in terms of our international involvement? It almost seems like, from my perspective, that both Democrats and Republicans, say, you're the president, you make the decision. If it's a mess, it's on your watch. We're not going to have anything There's to do a with lot. It. You're exactly right. There's a lot of that. There is this institutional sense, okay, how come you didn't come ask us? And then when you quietly ask members of Congress, do you want to go cast this vote on this on tough issue? They're like, no, let, let, let the president take the heat on that. But I think institutionally it's, it's been corrosive because now no one even asked the question, was there a vote for this war or was there a vote for this action? <coughs> Pardon me. Or, or does this rise to the – um, rise to there being um, a vote at all. Well, one of the things that always comes out, it's not just uh, the, the vote to go to war, to give the president the power to utilize the troops in foreign conflict, is do members of the House, do members of the Senate actually get the opportunity to fully go through the bills? Because, as you know, many have been caught sort of in a void of being asked questions by the fourth estate in which they're completely oblivious to what's uh, in the bulk of the legislation. And uh, is, well, that a, is that a problem where they're jamming through legislation that you as a legislator, when you were a congressman, really didn't have an opportunity to go through uh, line by line, page by page? Well, yeah, but this is where the committee system really works. <clears throat> Forgive me. I get very emotional when I talk about legislation. <clears throat> Forgive me. Um, this is where the committee system works. When people would say, read the bill, read the bill about the Obamacare bill, because I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee, because I helped write the bill. Indeed, I had read the bill. The problem comes 
in foreign affairs, you ask the administration stuff, they have to give you permission to see what you may want to, to know about. So they'll give you a briefing. They'll roll out this tube that looks like a long aluminum foil tube and say, hey, this is a sign that Saddam Hussein has, has um, nuclear weapons. And you'll say, okay, but can I see document A, B, or C? And they'll say, no, that's, that's, that's classified even for a member of Congress. Yeah, well, remember, we had to wait for Colin Powell and George Tennant, the two New York City guys. Uh, Colin Powell had gone to Morris High School, George Tennant, who had gone to uh, Bronx High School of Science, even though he grew up in Astoria. He was the CIA director, if you remember, for Clinton. And then Bush 41 convinced Bush 43, ah, he's a good CIA director. Bring him on board, uh, Bush 43. They did. And I got to tell you, I was so embarrassed looking at these graduates of the New York City public high school uh, system make the case before the General Assembly that we should go to war based on uh, Toyota half-track trucks with tubes on the back as if they were the carriers of weapons of mass destruction. And they made the case. And by the way, and we're paying the price for it today. Just look at your board. I mean – when people call into this show and we say something, if we hypothetically say, well, the administration reports A, B, or C, a lot of them say they make stuff up. They fib. Like, this stuff has a real corrosive effect. And while at the time we say, ah, oh, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is I, I cast the wrong vote. A lot of us did based on these briefings that we got that were total rubbish. The big deal is that when we do need to, to, to motivate a national spirit to do something, it's hard to do it because there's so much skepticism. When we come back, a uh, little blast from the past, uh, Anthony Weiner, uh, my wife Nancy, who archives uh, a lot of the uh, stuff that I've accumulated because I'm a clutterer, has come across something that I want to read to our audience that suggests that our relationship goes back quite a bit in terms of others who are encouraging the both of us to run against one another a long, long time ago. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Anthony Weiner and to our audience, uh, the relationship I have with Anthony goes way, way back, uh, even politically. Uh, we actually have a crew here from New York Magazine uh, who is uh, critiquing the show today. They're in studio with us, and it's from their publication. My wife, Nancy, was able to find this. She is the archivist for all my clutter, and I am a clutterer. Uh, I definitely have separation anxiety from everything, and she has to archive it, and the rest of it she recycles. But this was from the Intelligentsia section, New York Magazine. September 23rd, 1996. It had a picture of me. I must have been going to some event uh, because it was the uh, tuxedo that I rarely, if ever, wear with the red uh, uh, Pee Wee Herman uh, a tie. A Curtis Lee vigilant campaigner. And then it asked the question, a Curtis Lee Wiener Rose. Though Brooklyn Congressman Charles Schumer's all-but-declared run for governor is two years off, hungry politicians have already begun vying for a seat. Controversial Councilman Anthony Weiner has declared, and now it seems, so has Guardian Angel founder Curtis Sliwa. According to Sliwa, Democrats and Republicans unhappy with Weiner, there are many, he insists, have been clamoring for him to throw his beret in the ring. 
Guy Molinari's been trying to get me to run for years, says the unbashful Sliwa. And this isn't just any neighborhood. Where the Chuck Schumer district goes, so goes the city. According to sources, Sliwa's assertions are not just hot air. But should he decide to run, the political novice has a long road ahead of him. And should Sliwa fail, probable opponent Wiener already has a consolation plan for him. Wiener's encouraged me to compete in the annual Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest in Coney Island, even after Ed the Incinerator Cratchy beat me for the past two years, says Sliwa. He's convinced I can bring the mustard-colored belt of supremacy back to Brooklyn. There it goes. You and I have been circling each other in the ring and outside the ring for years. By the way, speaking of New York Magazine and Intelligencer, the first magazine profile of me was in Intelligencer in the New York Magazine by Stephen Dubner, now the famous Freakonomics host. Uh, he wrote it and had a picture of me. I looked, after that first campaign, I looked like death warmed over. I had lost, like, a, I was already skinny, lost a lot of weight. I also dated someone in New York Magazine for a while. I love New York Magazine. They're great. It's nice to see that but they're But let me ask you about this, around. because remember, there was that period of time where it seemed that Congressman Schumer wanted to run for governor. In fact, remember, it was thought of Elliot Spitzer versus uh, Schumer, and then Schumer opted not to run, and that cleared the field for Elliot Spitzer. How serious was uh Charles Schumer in terms of becoming governor of the state. He, of New York. Was, he was he was serious. I had just a few years earlier, you know, I, I had worked for Chuck until 91 when I ran for office myself. Um, he was serious about it and thought about it and considered it, but ultimately made the right decision that he was a legislator. He was not an executive. The same thing came up around mayor when there was talk about him. I remember urging him to, to run for mayor. I can't remember when it was. Um, and he basically came to say that his chops were legislating, and he's a great legislator. So he made the right decision. But that was clearly, you know, he'd raised a bunch of money. He and Steve Solars in the early parts of their career both circled each other, thinking redistricting would throw them in together. So they both raised at the time what seemed like a lot of money. Today it would be nothing. He had that money and was now starting to look and was starting, and he had a lot of connections in Albany having been a state assemblyman. So he considered it seriously, but I think I think history will show he made the right decision. And you mentioned the blast from the past, <clears throat> Stephen Solars. Uh, when they redistricted his congressional district, that was the first time I saw a Rorschach test because he was trying to get a Hispanic district, uh, Nidia Velasquez. I looked at the line. It, like, went from Greenpoint, like, through every conceivable place that they could find Hispanics living and Solars ran against her for that district in laws. Right, but what you, what happened is he was thrown in with Gary Ackerman, and he said, "I can't beat Ackerman." That was the bulk, the 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 bulk of his. He was chopped up. I mean, and whenever they eliminate someone's district, and it shows you the benefit of being popular. Chuck was popular with his his colleagues in Albany. Steve wasn't, and they chopped up his district, and he chose to run in a district that didn't have an incumbent. And tried to speak Spanish and obviously didn't do very well. And, and the, and the irony of this uh, article in New York Magazine is even though I did not run against you, that would have been as a Republican, your challenger in the Democratic primary turned out to be Melinda Katz, who is the mother of my two younger right. sons. Right, and, and, and Melinda and I ran a very close race. I would have beaten you like a rented mule. Yeah, you would have been no problem. In that district, looking at the analytics, it would have been a tough haul for the Republicans <laughs> in both the Brooklyn side and the Queens side. But as it stood out, 
you won that race against Melinda Katz, who is now the Queen's DA, by a few hundred votes. Very close race. And, uh, yeah, it, everything needed to go right for me to win that race. And uh, she's an, a, an, a, an amazing elected official and a great representative of Queen's. And I'm, I'm so pleased to see that it worked out for her. Now, you wanted to amend something from last oh, week. Oh, yeah. I just, you know, I think one of the things we should do on our show is when we make mistakes on the air and someone calls us on us, we should have like a correction section like they do in the papers. So Jason in East Hampton pointed out, you know, when I said that there weren't standards for these sheds, the restaurant sheds, he sent me a, uh, a whole breakdown of what the rules are. The problem is apparently so few people are following them, but there are indeed very, very specific regulations, how they must look, what kind of reflective tape there has to be. There even a thing that says you have to have a pole for the snow removals to be able to see in case there's ever more than 30 inches of snow. So those standards exist, and so I want to amend what I said last week when I said that there should be better standards. The standards are there, but just people aren't following them. It's amazing because you're doing that on a local issue level. We've had a series of hosts here uh, over the last few days who have had to do their mea copas because each and every one of them in their own, on their own bully pulpit had to acknowledge they were hopelessly wrong about Vladimir Putin. Started with uh, the uh, guy who does the other side of Midnight, Frank Morano. He acknowledged he was wrong. Bill O'Reilly admitted he was wrong. A whole series of talk show hosts and hostesses here had said he'll never invade the Ukraine. Maybe he'll take a little chip, you know, on the eastern end, but he'll never, ever invade the Ukraine. How could so many people have been wrong when, in fact, our intelligence, our President Joe Biden, and Vladimir Putin himself is saying, I'm invading the Ukraine. Why is it that so many people refuse to look at all the documentary evidence? Because we think we understand a rational mind. It might not be rational. I mean, sometimes we look at it through, you know, we try to assess it through our sense of what would be a rational. Thing. I said the same thing. I said, I'm super skeptical that this guy wants to swallow this big a, a piece of land. Almost everybody did. And that's why you want to join us, same time, same place, next week, Saturdays, 2 to 4. If you can't catch it uh, on appointment radio, the live broadcast, you can certainly get it on the podcast with all the other great podcasts at wabcradio.com. 